0: And in this week, instead of having Will Benson, because he is off gallivanting around Europe, uh, doing fun things rather than being on this podcast, we have a very special guest. It's my pleasure to announce Clint Gibbler. Uh, for those that don't know him, I can't believe anybody wouldn't for this audience, but Clint is awesome. Clint writes the TLDR Sec newsletter, which is the only thing that you have to read in security every week. Uh, he tirelessly writes it. He does not miss one. Uh, we were off in a conference somewhere and he showed up all disheveled looking and said that he was basically like up all night working on that instead of having fun or doing other conference things so very dedicated by day he's a research director at r2c um, and he's just an awesome security person so i'm really grateful to have him here thank you for joining us clint
1: yeah thanks so much for having me travis uh, i think You may be talking about uh, sec, which is a wonderful conference in Hawaii. And when other people were uh, relaxing uh, by the pool and by the beach, I uh, spent some time in my room writing the newsletter. So maybe a little bit sad, but also uh, wonderful to know that people find it useful. So yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Relaxing. You're doing it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> in that, in that vein. So I tried to make some nice swag for everybody. I feel like we have a good thing going on with the 404 podcast here. And so I was like, great, why don't we just get something simple like whiskey glasses or shirts for the host or something like that. And it is in this day, 2022, it's still impossible to get reasonable swag made. And I spent, I'm not even kidding an hour and a half. A lot of that time was going slack back and forth with leaf saying like, how about this? And then it's like, no, it has like a 50 minimum like, I don't want 50 whiskey glasses. I just want a few. And then shirt sizing is a nightmare. All of these minimums. Sometimes you can get something with a logo on it, but it's like a tiny little logo. It's like half an inch logo. Um, So nobody would want that. I don't understand why nobody's cracked this problem, but if somebody wants to disrupt the whole space, I would be your first customer.
2: Anything that requires you to physically do something, is just hard, I think. And so nobody wants to do it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It is a messy business. Yeah, And then, so rant over, but Clint has offered to tell us some some good extension of the Joe Sullivan stuff that we discussed last time. Uh, I think Clint had a special front row seat to it. So yeah, I'd love to hear about that.
1: Yeah. I just offered to chat a little bit about it because uh, there was a really interesting uh, discussion last time uh, that I enjoyed hearing uh, your all's thoughts on. And um, yeah, I would say uh, I'm certainly not an expert on the uh, Uber slash uh, Joe Sullivan trial. There's lots of things uh, to read about it that I have not read. I've read a number of things and uh, I have met Joe a few times uh, in person, and I have chatted a little bit with people with like firsthand knowledge who like were there during the events uh, related to the trial. And I did actually uh, attend the last day of the trial to hear the closing arguments uh, in person. And um which was actually really fascinating. If you've never uh, attended a trial, I don't think I had before, but the last day is kind of like the TLDR of the whole trial. Uh, Which is actually like pretty cool because uh, there's basically the prosecution and the defense get some time to just like, hey, we've made these arguments over like multiple weeks or maybe even months. Here's like basically everything we said in like two hours. Here's all the evidence. Here's all the witnesses we heard from. And um, so that was pretty cool. So I don't know if I would recommend going to like all of a trial, but definitely the last day. Uh, was pretty cool. Yeah. So I don't know. I had, at least from my perspective as like a security professional attending, uh, I had some like thoughts that I'd be curious to hear your all's take on. Yeah. Just like, you know, caveat, uh, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an expert in this case, but you know, as like a security professional attending, like some thoughts. Yeah. So I think one thing uh, you all pointed out last time, uh, which... Uh, I agree with was uh, the issue was not uh, that there was a breach, it was that a failure to report the breach. Um, so Uber was already under uh, investigation from the FTC from a prior breach. Um, I have a little hot goss on that, uh, that I'll talk about later. Yeah. So so basically, um, the argument was like, hey, there was this breach, you knew about it, you chose, uh, I think it was like, Uh, Miss prison. So you intentionally basically tried to hide a crime from the FTC or that there was some sort of obstruction. And the basically prosecution tried to make uh, the argument that, you know, this was intentional. He's trying to hide it from people within the company, uh, as well as like externally to the FTC and others. I don't know, at least based on the evidence that was presented from the defense. I thought it was a pretty weak case against him, to be honest. Basically, like the, the the prosecution was like, hey, he was trying to hide it from everyone. Look how secretive he was and blah, blah, blah. And I didn't really think that was the case. Um, they had a bunch of like emails and internal documents that was like, here's Joe telling Travis, the CEO, the same day or like the next day, here's him talking to the comms team. Like, so I think within Uber at the time, there was like general comms team. Then I think the security team had like their own sort of comms team. And he was like, look at him telling the security comms team, look at them telling the rest of the comms team and their bosses. And like, here's all the different security people working on the incident. They have like a detailed like play-by-play, like, here's exactly what we did. This, like, very detailed write-up internally that I would say is generally best practices um, if you're responding to an incident uh, as a competent security team. You're like, this is what we know at this time. This is what we did. And just, like, very, like, methodical. Here's, like... 10 to 30 pages about exactly what happened and what we did. And uh, yeah, it wasn't necessarily broadcasted to the whole company, but generally that's not what you do in a security incident. You're like, who is working on it? Who needs to know? And and like leadership and the right other teams are notified as well. And to be honest, it seemed like they followed best practice uh, in that respect. And uh, yeah, I think part of the reason around not reporting it, I forget the exact details, but there was a lawyer who basically was sort of assigned to the security team who was working closely with Joe uh, throughout it. And basically, I think there were like two or three criteria that if these things either were to be the case or were not to be the case, then the sort of legal advice internally was like, you don't need to report it. And I think one of the criteria was like, was this access unauthorized? And I think by putting it under the bug bounty program, sort of by definition that was authorized, it was kind of, I think there was some hang up about like, oh, can you really ex post facto authorized activities that you didn't sort of upfront authorize. Um, So I think there's like some nuance there, but basically based on the criteria that I think the lawyer presented, Joe and the security team, all of those criteria were like, yeah, like it fulfills these things, thus it doesn't need to be disclosed. So I don't know, like, yes, Joe could have reported it, but I think the legal person who's like basically was Uber's Legal opinion in this case, I think, advised him not to report it. So I don't think it was like Joe trying to hide it from everyone. It was like, hey, we had like legal experts look at this, and they were like, we don't feel like we need uh, to report this. That that was my interpretation. Basically, like there were some other things the prosecution tried to argue about, like oh, they tried to get like the uh, uh, researchers or attackers to like sign an NDA and like tried to like shovel it under the bug bounty program, which like from one frame of reference could seem shady, but also like, that's not uncommon practice. Like they also interviewed, like, I think either the hacker one or bug crowd CEO, and they were like, Hey, is this common practice? And they were like, yeah, companies do this all the time where like someone did something that was maybe like out of scope, but they're like, ah, thanks for letting us know. Let's put this under the bug bounty program so that we can like effectively pay you to find a way to like legally, like sort of give you money. They also did some pretty clever tricks actually. Um, So in the NDA process, they basically used that to like leak the IP of one of the hackers. Um, And then they used that IP to like track it down to like whatever hosting provider they were using. And then um, they worked with that hosting provider to find it, like get access to that person's account to see what data was actually stolen and to confirm it was deleted. And they actually did, in my opinion, one of the better like incident re- response processes I've seen in terms of like attribution. Like they figured out who exactly these people were, where they lived. They actually sent people to like go interview them in person to like judge their character, to see like, if they say they deleted it, did they actually delete it? I mean, like that's... I don't know, orders of magnitude better than I would say most companies respond to like how many people actually attribute themselves to the physical person who did the thing, Um, like where they live, who they are, like their government ID, like it was actually pretty impressive. And they did this whole thing in a few days. So yeah, I thought that was interesting. I don't know, I guess another random thought I had uh, just throughout the whole process is there was a lot of technical details in the case to be like, ah, like like listening to lawyers explain to like a jury of lay people, what like S3 buckets and like how the cloud works and all these things. I was like, like, even to me, like I had to pay attention a bit to like follow to make sure I understood all the contexts. And I was like, I'm just really not convinced that like a jury of your peers of like non-technical, let alone non-security audience really has the context to make like a fair decision about like what's fair or what's right. Like I think Like for us, for example, working in this field for a while, I think we'd be like, yeah, secrets are going to end up on GitHub sometimes. This is just like the world. And there was like a series of things like that that I think the prosecution tried to frame as like negligence or like, oh, they weren't doing their job. When I think in any company, like you're going to see stuff like that. And you guys talked about that uh, last time, I think with a couple of other examples of like, these things happen in every company. Like this is just the truth of the world. So TLDR, I think that like, I thought they did a pretty good job technically. They had robust processes in place. It seemed like they received legal advice that was like, you don't have to report it. And they were like, I trust you legal team of my company. And yeah, I I have some like other thoughts, but I'll maybe like stop there. What is your responses to this?
0: I mean, my quick take is, uh, yeah, I think a jury of your peers, you know, people that aren't exposed to technology, making in-depth choices about technology is not likely to be successful. Uh, I would say, I don't know how the FTC does these things, but you would think that they'd at least get technologists, like some swath of technologists that are going to have the background knowledge here and know what's normal for a company.
2: Well, but for juries, is that even part of it? I thought it was just like totally random. I guess
0: what I'm saying is maybe for a, for a trial like this, it should be a different selection process. Um, same thing uh, with like complex financial crimes. Maybe you would get people with a finance background that understand sort of the the way that the game is played.
3: But isn't there usually a limitation? And like, if you have too much familiarity or personal relationship to the type of things, you're not allowed to be on a jury. And I say that again, I'm I'm an immigrant, so I don't really know how the American judicial system works, but I feel like that's on TV. I think one of the
2: lawyers would have been if like Travis or I or Clint was on there. I think one of the lawyers would probably be like, we don't want this guy on here. (laughs) He he knows too much about what we're going to say.
1: Yeah, part of me like totally agrees with you, Travis, like, oh, it would be nice to have uh, like medical malpractice, you have doctors or whatever, like be like, yeah, like this happens all the time, or like, oh, this was actually negligence. But at the same time, you could imagine people in that field would close ranks and protect their own. So like, like there could be systematic bias or opinions in an industry. So I don't know, I both believe that most of the people in the panel probably weren't super qualified to understand the technical details, but also... Yeah, how do you keep
3: the bias out? So yeah, I don't know. I was just going to say, it feels like technical negligence. Neglig- neglig- I can't even say the word. Uh, shouldn't be uh, judged by a jury of your peers either. Maybe that does feel a little misplaced. And also um, go back to the uh,
0: the thing about so if you have a bug bounty and somebody goes into the bug bounty and does something, and then they cross the line, which happens a lot. I think we've all seen that probably. Uh, so you've they've crossed the line. <laughs> yeah you've crossed the line, but you came in through the bug bounty, so it's probably it's more likely to be a mistake. On the other hand, I think we could probably all agree that there's some line where it's like this was a straight up breach that then you wanted to not disclose and you wanted to find some way to pay a ransom that looked legit and then you shovel them through your program. I think we probably agree that's over the line. And then there's a giant gray area in between,
2: yeah. I do think that there is a significant difference of like, you know, if I submit something to the Netflix bug bounty, And it's out of scope, but I submit it kind of just like through the program. And then, you know, maybe we do some negotiations on what the payment is like. That is very different than me going outside of the bounty and being like, hey, give me a bunch of money. I have all this data. And then you say, oh, please, can you put it through the bug bounty? Uh, Like those are two very different scenarios in my mind.
1: Yeah, I think if I recall correctly, I I could be wrong about this, but I believe Uber at the time had a private bug bounty program, but not a public one. And how this basically happened is I think the hackers basically emailed like security at and were like, you know, probably in lead speak like, hey, I have lots of your sensitive data, pay huge monies or it's getting released. Um, I think one or both of the hackers, I think was like a teenager or something at the time perhaps. So like pretty young and... If you recall, this is also in like 2016. So I think the bug bounty industry was overall like more nascent at that time. And I think it was, at least my perspective is, I think it, it was often like people were just, yeah, emailing you semi like threatening things in exchange for money. Uh, maybe that seemed like more common then than it is now, where it's like a little more established that you can yeah. look like, at vulnerabilities and things. Um, so I think I think times are a bit different from when this happened to now uh, in some respects. Yeah. yeah and and-
3: regulatory, the regulatory uh, sort of space was a lot different. And so I think expectations very different. I'm surprised though, that the lawyers here don't have a bigger, play a bigger role in the outcome, given that they were clearly giving uh, instruction that was then sort of putting Joe in a a bad spot.
1: Yeah. The person who made those recommendations basically got an immunity deal from uh, the prosecution to give all the uh information uh he could uh, to cooperate uh, on the case um so yeah there's i think a lot of details about that and yeah i think one sad thing about the case is that a lot of people involved like we're very close friends and this has kind of driven a wedge between a number of them um as you can imagine it's a, a pretty stressful thing and especially if you're sort of like who's guilty me or you sort of thing um so i think sort of all bad uh, all around i i will say um like having met uh joe a couple of times I, i'm not like super close but he does seem like a super cool dude and like very like genuine and I don't know, like good character-ish. I think I did uh, visit a Cloudflare RSA party uh, before the pandemic. So like approximately a thousand years ago. And uh, one thing that was very impressive to me is it was one of the most diverse security teams I've ever met, which is like pretty hard to build. Um, so I found that like pretty impressive. And I think speaks to like the kind of leader who can assemble a, a team uh, like that. Cause I think it requires like being pretty genuine and I don't know, supporting like psychological safety and uh, like building an environment that people feel comfortable and safe in. So I got a pretty good vibe from that, to be honest. And I know a number of people have followed him across multiple companies across many years. And I think to me, that indicates a leader that people respect and trust and want to follow. So at least from what I've seen from him, as well as the people around him, he seems like a very trustworthy, good leader. At least that's basically universally what I've heard from anyone who's ever worked with him.
0: With that, let's, uh, let's move on to, let's go out on a positive note for that story. So we have a whole bunch of new news to discuss and uh, Leif, I think you're first
2: yeah so this one's actually another callback uh, to last episode. This is an article by Cyberscoop, which we'll put in the show notes if you want to check it out. But it's all about uh, the Rob Joyce memes, which last time we we said we hope more government agencies make memes and one of the things that I loved in this article was they actually pulled an analysis from a meme expert, Sylvia Sierra, from Syracuse University. And I just feel like this is the reporting we need, like we need meme experts. To weigh in on things, and a highlight for me was in her analysis. She was like, "I think that the memes are actually created by Rob and not an intern." And the reasoning was, "Is they're all old memes, and they're using the classic like white text with black border, and yes. uh, an intern would be picking new memes <laughs> that are more modern." <laughs> she also went on to say, "Like, hey, it's probably okay that the memes are outdated because Rob's followers are probably also a little bit older." And it just reminded me of the scene in Star Wars where Hans in the, in the shuttle using the dated code and the empire is like, it's an old code, but it checks out. And I just feel like that is Rob Joyce followers. Like looking at the memes from a decade ago.
0: I went in a rabbit hole at one of the linked stories in that it was like from the meme expert or something like that. And here's the breakdown. Uh, impact is the old school font and the new hotness is apparently Ariel or Montserrat, which I've never heard of. And they said, comic sans is a boomer font. So this is what yeah. I learned today.
3: I mean, plus one to that, though. I believe Comic Sans is a boomer font, but not sure though about Impact. I trust uh, the
0: meme expert. Yeah, that's the <laughs> the art art style memes.
3: Can we get the meme expert on on the podcast? Is that possible? Yes,
0: <laughs> that'd be amazing.
2: When, when source league gets, gets series A, we'll <laughs> we'll spend money on the meme expert.
1: Done. I wonder, uh, like similar to how uh, there's art historians who can look at a painting or look at like a sculpture and be like, oh, this is probably from this era. Do you think there's going to be similarly be mean? Yeah, that's Sylvia. So we're like, well, okay, we see a (laughs) velociraptor. We see the impact font. So this is clearly in the 2010 to 2015 range.
0: A thousand years from now, (laughs) these things are going to be passed on like Egyptian hieroglyphs.
1: Amazing. (laughs) Sorry, Travis, I think you're about to move on, but I...
0: No, no, no. Yeah, I love it. I'm here for it. Uh, Yeah, so OpenSSL... I think we all got spooked out We're there's going to be a new heart bleed kind of thing there was all this rumble about this new open ssl every time there's an open ssl critical it ends up being really bad for everyone just because of where it's used everywhere we all got a little bit of ptsd from log4j which is very recent and over a holiday period and this was going to be right before halloween uh, and then right before it was going to be announced what i started hearing was it's nothing like it's it's not an actual issue which kind of makes you wonder how do you get this disparity? So what happened is the the vulnerability allowed an attacker to write four bytes, but those bytes ended up being only periods. So you can only write periods. It does like not very useful. You have to be a pretty good attacker. And then the embargo process started happening. So embargoes is when the maintainers of the project start sending it out to trusted groups to vet in their environment. And in the embargo process, the feedback they got was basically that the modern protections against Stack Overflow are helping a lot. And in at least some of the common Linux platforms, the array that you can overwrite is actually something adjacent and it's not initialized. So ended up being downgraded significantly. Uh, so my take is that this is actually a really cool side effect of how embargoes work. It's not the main purpose of it, but you get progressively more eyes. And in that process, you actually start learning new stuff.
3: Yeah. And I think, I think you're absolutely right though, that we were a little burned or traumatized from last year. It's what log for shell is its birthday was four days ago for those who keep track. Was it? (laughs) Yeah.
2: Wow. That does not uh, feel like that long ago.
3: (laughs) Right. (laughs) But everyone is sort of looking into the the holidays going, oh, shit, are we going to have to spend another two weeks patching hundreds of applications, just trying to get through it? And so I think that was a little bit of a timing, a little bit of a timing thing. I do appreciate, though, like the week in advance notice of like there will be a CV drop. Like, let's review your infrastructure to see where you got open SSL implemented. So thankful, I guess, over Thanksgiving.
2: I agree that the advance notice is good when it actually turns out to be something but you kind of end up burning a lot of time if it isn't like, I remember there was somebody from the node security working group that kind of tweeted something a little cryptic at some, it was probably like a year or two ago. And I was like, Oh shit. Like, are we going to have to deal with something bad? And then it turned out it was kind of like a nothing burger. And like, we had already like went around to teams and we were like, Hey, you know, we need one team to be ready to create the new, like blessed image, all these other teams, like you might need to be ready to like test this and like get going. And then when it came out, we were like, uh, sorry, we kind of got you riled up, but but, like just patch on like the normal
3: schedule. It's not a big deal. Yeah. But I think you need to be, you need to have better processes to understand like what's in your infrastructure. Like third party villains are a big thing. And so like understanding your supply chain is going to be increasingly more important. And then having automation around that to identify and then like set up processes, but yeah, not, not do a fire drill preemptively. Maybe
0: the thing too, is it was, it was critical, but upon reading the details, I was actually really questioning why it was critical in the first place. So there was, there was two exploits. Basically there was a client side case and a server side case. So I think the server side is what most of these embargo companies are worried about. And the server side case was really pretty scarce because you had to have basically a signed certificate for the malicious name. And so it seemed pretty unlikely that folks were going to be able to get that. So that left the client side. Um, And the client side, it's, Yes, it's technically buffer overflow, which is why it became a critical. But a lot of companies use basically that threshold to decide are we going to spin an incident and make everybody stay and work overnight and over holidays and or whatever? Or if it's a high, then it's like, yeah, fine, just patch it in 30 days like usual. So I think we have to be more careful with that line, particularly because of how companies are using it.
2: If anybody listening is like, I want to read through this, there's a we'll put a link to the pwn all the things tweet. And I thought that was a really good walkthrough of the vulnerability because I actually like hadn't really dug into how it worked.
0: I guess one more callback. So the, the Security Week article that we, we also will have linked, says that there was a company that inspected 47 million ICS and OT, which is operational technology. I had to look it up, but basically the systems that control systems that manufacture things and found that none of them are using OpenSSL v 3 So that was released September 21. And these things are so slow moving that nobody had picked it up yet. Uh, which is, you know, kind of a call back to last time when we were talking about that White House badge for for IoT devices. It's not exactly the same thing, but yeah, they're they're going to be pretty slow moving, and people are slow, aren't going to care.
3: Reminds me of a friend of mine who told me that they were happy last year for for Log4Shell that they hadn't been quick enough to patch the first time, so they only had to do it once. And I was like, I don't. That's not good security, though. <laughs> All right, uh, we have another one. Honor, you're up. Yeah, I'm up. And let's talk a little bit about my new favorite, sort of watching a train wreck happen in real time. So Twitter, right? What's going on? Recently, both their CISO and who is also their head of privacy and the head of trust and safety both resigned. And so Twitter has since May, I think of what last year been uh, under regulation from the FTC, given that they have violated a lot of privacy concerns in the past. And so they are under quite a lot of scrutiny. But now with both Heads of privacy, security, and trust and safety gone. One, how does F- the FTC really enforce these uh, policies moving forward? And then, what does that mean for Twitter? Really, uh, seems like a lot of a lot of people in general are gone from the company. But now, as as they're moving forward, what is what is that going to mean for Twitter security and account security there?
0: My favorite bit of this was a quote: Musk's new legal team is asking engineers to self-certify compliance with FTC rules and other privacy laws. Fuck no. (laughs) If I'm an engineer, like no way am I doing that. That is so risky. That's just how can how can you be an expert in what these things are? And you're supposed to self-certify with all of the implications of that. Like engineers
1: aren't paid enough.
3: It's the worst, worst version of security is everybody's job, right? (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) That and that and the personal liability.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It was like we want you to ship things all the time really quickly, but also self-certify and take on the risk yourself if things are not perfect. It's sort of like. Yeah. Do you agree to go to prison even if you've written no unit tests and you pushed a prod and you guarantee there's no bugs? It's like
3: yeah, yeah but you you Things printed like- them out on a, out on a piece of paper and had Musk look at it, right? So that's how you do security reviews, right? This feels like the the security company that Travis made up in the former episode, where like you do <laughs> manual.
0: Yeah, exactly. You just manual. stuff everyone in a room until they
2: until they meet the demands. One thing that I I'm kind of interested to see what plays out about this is. So Twitter originally got in trouble I think in 2011 for using 2FA phone numbers for things other than 2FA which I think is like the original hot water and then the thing in May that Anna mentioned was actually a violation of that 20 year consent order. So they're they're only halfway through that original consent order at this point. Um and then they got caught using personal info to target ads and I saw one of the like messages from a Twitter lawyer that was like Twitter could be in a lot of trouble if they continue down this path, because they could have fines that are billions of dollars. And Musk is obviously trying to do anything he can to monetize the platform quickly. But I wonder if we'll see leaders at other companies point to some of this stuff and be like, Hey, like, I know that we're in the business of protecting the company. And sometimes we're seen as a cost center, but like the cost can be quite high if you don't take us seriously and don't fund us adequately.
3: And so what happens then if they go bankrupt? Like what happens if he bankrupts Twitter? What happens to the FTC? Like is does he still owe them money or because the company entity is no longer, is he just fine? And is that why?
0: Can could follow him around like that other CEO we talked about last time.
2: I've read more about FTC stuff in the last Six weeks preparing for these podcasts, and I've read it my whole life beforehand.
0: FTC's uh, heating up the water yeah they they said another quote from the article The FTC spokesperson said the agency was tracking recent developments at Twitter with deep concern. No CEO or company is above the law, and companies must follow our consent decrees like if i'm if I'm Elon that's that's scary stuff. You know he's got a track record of basically like pushing through obstacles, but FTC is not a group that you want to mess with.
3: It would be funny though if this followed him around for years and years and years.
2: Do you think? I mean, would it based on the one that we talked about last time? I wonder if it would just apply immediately to other companies. Like, would it just apply to to Tesla and SpaceX? Like, I feel like it would.
3: That would be interesting. I really hope that they aren't selling like a lot of personal information from SpaceX, but that's just me.
0: Oh, so much Twitter stuff. You can't escape it anymore. On the, in that note, we have another Twitter story. So 5.4 <laughs> million records were leaked. Uh, so the way that this actually happened, there was an API vulnerability where an attacker could hit the API and give a phone number or an email address. And the Twitter API would helpfully send back all of the information associated with that Twitter profile. So you could just basically shotgun a big list of emails or a big list of phone numbers and then attach those to a Twitter profile. Um, and there was apparently there's a bigger leak where somebody did this at even more scale and that's going around so this was a hacker one report initially but then multiple attacker groups were using it the bug itself was fixed back in january of 2022 so uh, a while ago but yeah the data is just now coming out and then you know my take on this is that this actually isn't that big of a deal for people that use their public identities i mean i'm maybe i'm the worst kind of security nihilist but I figure that my email and phone number is public information. I mean, given the amount of sales people that are jamming me up about anything on my phone or email, it's out there. So I think the the people that would be impacted are using some kind of an anonymous Twitter profile, but they haven't done the right OPSEC to actually set up a, like a burner phone and a burner email. What do you all think?
2: Yeah, that was my thought too. Like I'm in the same boat. Like I use my, my Twitter is just leaf Drysler. I'm the only leaf Drysler. Like if somebody wants to find my phone number, I guarantee they can figure it out. But I do worry for people that are part of vulnerable groups that like probably don't even really know what OPSEC is. They're just like, I signed up for Twitter and like, you know, they could be somebody who's in like a conflict zone in another country. They could be somebody who's maybe doing some sort of journalism or activism or whatever, like here in the United States or abroad. And like, I definitely think it's a pretty serious issue for for people that are in, in that boat or a similar boat.
3: That and I think Twitter's role in the past year in sort of the political, climate, and sort of freedom of speech conversation that is happening, especially in America. I think with a leak like this, you give people the first step into a lot of personal information for people who could be targeted just because it is a Twitter leak. And so I think that's that's why it has a higher level of re- relevance for me at least. Yeah, that's a really good point.
0: And I mean, I don't know, are you all surprised that these kind of vulnerabilities would happen? It seems no. like a sort of a helpful API that somebody forgot to put behind an auth or rate limit or something like that.
2: It kind of reminds me of the Cambridge Analytica thing. I know it's not like exactly the same, but I feel like there's parallels.
0: Well, fortunately, now that Twitter's on the way down, there's a new alternative, Mastodon. It's going to solve all of our problems. I thought you were going to say MySpace. Clint's got a take on that.
1: Yeah. um, So yeah, I actually uh, have not gotten on the Mastodon train yet, but it does seem like a lot of Infosec is. Uh, personally, I'm uh, at least currently too lazy to be using uh, another social platform. I feel like I already uh, am tired uh, of the ones I do use. Um, but yeah, so there were a couple of interesting articles recently. One of them was, uh, I guess, about an insecure by default system uh, configuration for Mastodon, where basically some person found that images and different files are hosted on uh, not S3, but a similar, I guess, platform called like Min.io. Uh, the person found it actually works at MinIO or Minio, uh, which sort of makes sense that they would have maybe the domain expertise to find this more easily. But basically they found that, you know, you would imagine that the various files hosted uh, would be publicly readable so that you can like do link preview or things like that. It's like, okay, cool. But uh, the person found that you can also basically arbitrarily like modify uh, different files as well. Um, So it's sort of like allowing, uh, I guess, like s3 star permissions and aws equivalently so anyway it's been reported and patched and things like that yeah to be honest like you would imagine like if this was something someone had been looking at like would be one of the first things you would try maybe not the first thing but maybe like top three or five so is it surprising that it happened no but i feel like um i have some thoughts on this but maybe first so another issue um i think gareth hayes yeah gareth hayes of uh Portswigger also found that so you can use like Markdown or HTML snippets in um, some of your toots uh, or whatever the tweet equivalent on Mastodon is. And um, basically found that they had, uh, I guess, some like. Regexes or filtering that tried to make uh, the content safe. Of course, he's Gareth Hayes and found holes in it as such that he could basically do HTML injection to include a form, and then Chrome would like autofill passwords in it, so he could basically like steal people's passwords. Um, there were some mitigating factors like the CSP or Content Security Policy was pretty strict, so it wasn't like easy to do whatever you want. But he could still do. Uh, impactful things. And I think more broadly, how I feel about just software and security in general is like, obviously there's always security vulnerabilities. And like, why are we seeing all these issues in Mastodon? Boom, boom, boom. As soon as more people are using it is uh, because people are looking at it and people care. So um, I think that I will say this because I want people to maybe disagree uh, with me, but I'll I'll do like a spicy take. Um, I would say I would expect Mastodon security to be significantly worse than Twitter security just because they've had fewer people. It's been this niche project. It's actually been around a while. It's just becoming popular recently. Whereas Twitter had at least at one point a large security team. They have a bigger attack surface maybe because they're doing more things. But um, yeah, I feel like It's likely Mastodon security is worse and will be for like a while um, compared to Twitter.
3: I, I don't think that you can get anything like Mastodon, which is, you know, sort of distributed hosting and up to each instance owner to sort of manage to reach the same level of security as something that is one platform managed by a security team. Right. I'm speaking of, of MySpace, Leaf. I was thinking of Sammy, right? The old XSS worm back in the MySpace days. And so I think like everything that enables anybody to run their own instance and configure them however they prefer will have a lot of vulnerabilities or other sort of even just misconfigurations that cause a lot of security issues. Like you can manage that in some ways through versioning, et cetera, but you still don't have the same level of control. So I think providing some level of visibility to users of each instance on how they are configured might be useful, but that, on the other hand, also offers sort of risks, right? In terms of visibility into security.
0: The S3 bit, this reminded me that this is just too hard. Like actually getting ACL set up correctly on an S3 bucket uh, requires changing the configuration of the bucket usually. And then also setting up IAM. IAM is really powerful. It's also very opaque to people that don't deal with it a lot. And so, I mean, if you have, if you have access from this token in the client that can write files, that's either you use the same role for the backend as you did for the client. So you basically failed to set up separate roles, or you just didn't understand kind of the impact of setting up these permissions, or you tried to set it up that way and you're going to fix it later and didn't, but any number of things can happen. And I guess my little personal quest is these things are too hard and we need to make it basically fail proof. You need to make it so that it's impossible to shoot yourself in the foot with these things.
3: Do you have a, a product in mind? Is this uh, a plug? <laughs> I,
0: might, I might have something someday.
1: Yeah, I think um, along these lines, um, about uh, I think, Anna, you're making a great point about um, sort of the, uh, I guess, strengths or value of having like single centralized platform versus many sort of distributed run by different people. I think another thing is my understanding, I haven't looked into this in detail, but I believe if you're running a Mastodon instance, you basically can arbitrarily read any DMs anyone is sending on your platform because, I mean, you're running the hardware, you're running the software. so. I, at least for me, I feel like expectation of privacy for me on Twitter versus Mastodon is like way, way different. Cause like who's running your Mastodon instance, probably like, you know, Alice Doe or Joe Schmo somewhere like in their basement or something, right? Like they're not like a security team who's accountable to anyone. Um, It's like literally probably one person running it. Yeah.
3: Yeah. And I think that is really where I think there has to be a level of education onto like, this isn't the new Twitter. It's not run like a large corporation and it's not supposed to be either. And then with that I think I I do adore all of our fantastic security colleagues who want to go out and test things immediately making sure they're secure and that they're safe but also recognizing that there is a dude his name is Jerry he seems awesome he's hosting this infosec mastodon server and like He doesn't have the time or capacity to navigate all of the security vulnerability reports or even tests that people are running and you can really mess things up. So I think there is a little bit of a balance there that I would love to see more of.
0: You think if Mastodon takes off, there's going to be commercialized servers, basically, so you pay a little bit more and then you get some kind of a security team behind it?
3: I don't know if I would make that prediction. To be honest, it's it's really hard in this space, right? Where you have a void left by something that is definitely slowly dying. See, Twitter, rest in peace. Mm-hmm. And then you have all these like new sort of distributed models popping up. I have a hard time seeing that really turn into something big or commercial that way, uh, especially since the sort of regulatory landscape and the uh, expectations uh, from that side are really really high. And so the commitment from that company would have to be really big. And I don't think that that's really why they're there.
2: I think you'll see some commercial hosting. I don't know that it's going to guarantee any sort of security. Like, I think it'll be more of a convenience thing where you're just like, I want to host a Mastodon for my friends or some social group or, you know, whatever. And I'm willing to pay a hundred bucks a month or whatever to some company because I don't understand all that techno babble that Travis was talking about earlier. And like, I don't want to do any of this. But I I think it'll end up being like a managed security service provider where it's just like, well, you've put all of your eggs in this basket and that you don't know if that basket is good at their job or
3: not. (laughs) And I mean there could be a benefit to somebody offering like standardized configurations with limitations and certain set of security features, say encryption, for example, for, for messaging with some level of security at least promises. And that could be interesting, right? Similarly to how people sign up for, you know, new Slack instances or 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 Discord or whatever, where they're just leveraging a broad platform that is configured to their needs, but with a certain set of security requirements. So maybe there is an opportunity there, but I don't know if that would even be uh, make commercial sense for anybody to really
0: do yeah, it'd be really interesting to see if mastodon continues how you know maybe it goes to like a wordpress model or something where you use the main wordpress platform it keeps it up to date there's plugins that you can add those are various trust and reputation levels you just choose to add those on the server or not
3: yeah, but then also maybe we should consider changing our relationship with social networks like that, right? Like maybe you shouldn't be sending sensitive information across like the social network. Maybe you should be using other messaging platforms for, for that purpose. And then this is just open, broad discussions about topics. Yeah, that's
0: a good point. I think we have a we have a callback last time we talked about just, you know, kind of egregious breaches at a company and then sanctions following the CEO. Uh this time we have The same thing with Chegg. Uh, So basically the FTC sued Chegg for having four breaches in a short period of time. I think it was like two or three years. And so these were the breaches. The first one was in 2017, there was a phishing attack targeted multiple employees and it basically led the attackers to being able to get their deposit info. So that's a relatively small one. I think phishing happens all the time. Phishing happens at any company. So then April, 2018, this is the bad one. So a former contractor used login information that they had to gain access to an s three bucket that contained forty million records of customers, including scholarship info, students' parent income, disabilities, sexual orientation, a whole bunch of stuff like that. then a year after that, there was an executive Wait, credential you, you missed
2: a you missed a piece of that last one. There was also twenty five million passwords in plain text
0: they were m d five it was a, it's m d five but it was twenty eighteen uh, so yeah they, that's a bad luck for twenty eighteen I think. <laughs> So, but actually the the worst part of that is that it was the root credentials and it was shared. And so, you know, root credentials, bad news. Don't ever use that. Don't use static credentials in general because your contractors can walk out with them and it's really hard to rotate. So you want to be using roles for that kind of thing in temporary access. Um, So yeah, just bad news all around. And then 12 months later, there was another employee phishing that led to access to the payroll system. Uh, that allowed attackers to steal hundreds of employee W-2s that include birthdates, social security numbers. And so, yeah, this is just like bad news all around. The FTC complaint said failure to provide contractors and employees with phishing awareness training. I thought that was really interesting. I didn't know that that was actually a requirement. I know that a lot of people institute phishing awareness training, but I didn't know that that was something that you could get sued for.
3: I also didn't know that to be honest. Um <laughs> But are they using one login for every single platform that they use internally? They're just like admin, admin, password, whatever like because if if they fished one person and got a hundred thousand like payroll or like like what?
0: yeah, so bad.
3: I wonder
2: if the phishing training was a result of the aftermath of like the first breach, like. It might've been like a provision where they're like, Hey, you need to take security more seriously. Like here's a few things you need to do. And like, maybe that, maybe that was why they got sued the second time.
3: Yeah. Cause that's how they do that. Things normally, right. They set new requirements onto you. And then if you don't do it, then you're in trouble. Yeah.
0: To me, that S3 bucket one is just so leaps and bounds above the other ones. Like phishing happens all the time. I think, yeah, if you have three phishing in three years or whatever that lead to breaches, that's not great. Should probably take some action about that. But having root credentials for contractors and no way to rotate it is just like, that's the worst AWS practice that exists.
3: You just use the same credentials for the payroll system.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's probably password one, two, three.
2: I also liked in the the bleeping computer article, like Chegg responded, and they were like, "Yes, we are we are taking these things very seriously." It's like I know that you have to say that because that's what everyone says, but it's like you're clearly not like you're not fooling anyone. You've been breached multiple times in the last like couple of years. Like you're obviously not, not taking
3: it seriously. Medium level security.
1: Let's say if we were to look at like a similar company of a similar size, similar number of developers, age security team size, like, do you think they would have better or worse security than that? Like, I'd say maybe from like a phishing and like being able to pivot point of view versus like, like the S3 uh, issue, for example, I guess, like, do you think like, are they targeted more than other companies? Or like, why do we feel like they've been breached more than maybe another company of a similar size and demographic? Not, not to say I'm protecting Chegg, but I'm curious, like what people think if that is like worse security practice than average
0: they do have quite sensitive information. So, I mean, all of that demographics about scholarships and, you know, has financial info. It has a lot of deeply personal info. So they could be more of a target for sure. But yeah, I'll I'll go back to the S3 thing. I mean, Amazon makes it just blindingly obvious to you. Like when you, when you deal with a root credential, it's like, do not ever use this for anything. So people have gone into that system multiple times and ignored that warning. And they're like, yep, we'll just use that and give it out to all the contractors.
3: Maybe it was the contractors to set up the S3 buckets to begin with.
0: DM contractors. (laughs)
2: <laughs> do you think that it's a snowball effect where attackers look at these FTC orders and they're like, oh, this company got roasted. Uh, like, let's go after them.
3: Which also, you know, I feel like the FTC, if anyone there ever listens to us, please continue to roast, like do that as a thing. please. We need more, more stories.
0: <laughs> For both Equifax and Capital One, from, from what I've heard, when they had their big breaches, security got significantly better. So sometimes companies come out of this thing and it's like a, you know, a wake up call for them.
3: You would hope that that would be the
0: default. Right. They might be the safest one around now.
2: All right. Well, let's go out on something fun. Before we do that, let's talk about the the Twitter copyright one. That, that one will Twitter fun. copyrights. That Sorry, I forgot it. That one's fun oh. and fast. So, you know, I think we've all noticed some things like not working quite right with Twitter the last month. Like there was the uh, SMS 2FA code snafu where people weren't getting... Uh, SMS. But another thing that got hit was the copyright detection. Um, And so the copyright detection just broke. And so people were uploading full movies that had been cut into two minute GIFs because that was like the, you know, the max length or whatever. And I just love that Uh, this is just some classic internet fun. Um, And people uploaded Fast and Furious. They uploaded uh, the 90s film Hackers. It was great. I really wonder if we'll see some Copyright infringement lawsuits. I think we've talked a lot about like the pot- potential issues that that they've been facing, but I wonder if we'll uh, we'll see any lawsuits as a result of this. And I was also reading a little bit that it seems like the system might be more broken than it seems because these accounts were just getting banned outright. Normally, I read something from Forbes that historically the content would have just gotten removed. And it seems like either people, that system didn't exist anymore, or it didn't work, or maybe nobody knew how to use it because everyone got fired or, or quit or whatever, um, but they just had to ban the accounts. But then you could still go to the account on mobile and watch hackers in two-minute segments. So there's definitely a lot uh, that that you know got messed up with the system.
3: I, I I partly like one of the reasons I love this so much is that it really like no one is gonna watch the entire movie in two minute gif segments. So from like an actual copyright perspective, it's not even like damaging that way, but because of the ways the laws are written they would definitely I canceled my Netflix
2: subscription. I was just gonna watch everything by just going down a a thread of a thousand gifs.
3: But it's it's very it's really returning to the whole spirit of like you wouldn't download a car and I'm like mm-hmm. yes I would, <laughs> but also completely useless. Don't
0: platforms have like safe harbor provisions where, like YouTube for example, people upload copyrighted stuff all the time and they're just responsible for taking it down. You're not responsible for blocking it from getting there. So as long as Twitter is banning the accounts or whatever and getting the stuff down effectively, which sounds like they're not, but. If they could get that going again, then they should be in
3: good shape. They should just find that one microservice.
0: <laughs> it turns out you can't just like rip all the services out and have everything work well.
2: I saw some uh, commentary as well that I think some of the content moderation people that got let go, like this was one of the things that they did in addition to like the disinformation research and like hate speech and all the other things. Like one of the things they would also do is, is like look at the feedback or reports for uh copyright infringement as well.
0: Thank you for not letting me forget the skateboarding dog leaf.
2: You got to end <laughs> on something fun.
1: Yeah. Travis, can I quickly? Do, yeah, please do. Like some spicy gas. Yeah. Oh on. yeah. I love it. Yeah. Uh, okay. So one thing that was revealed during the uh, Uber trial, uh, the Joe Sullivan one, was that so the reason the trial happened in the first place is because they were already under investigation from the FTC from a prior breach. Well, there was some details revealed about the prior breach that are pretty interesting. Um, so uh, I think it came out because of the trial, but I don't. I, I, I would say guess, but you're, I don't think it's possible to guess. But uh will <laughs> try anyway. Okay. Who do you think was behind the breach? I think it was like 2014, before the most recent case, the breach before that. Who was responsible? Do you think?
2: Marketing. What was the previous breach?
1: Uh, I think, I forget exactly, a bunch of PII probably, uh, of I think like maybe riders and drivers.
2: Is
0: it a person or a group?
1: Uh, I think one person in particular.
3: Security. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Actually, uh, I think one person named who was involved uh, was actually the Lyft CTO at the time, basically uh, accessed a bunch of Uber's data as like a competitive research thing, which then led to sort of the FTC breach. So that was sort of revealed in like discovery um, for the second trial. So imagine being like, we're under FTC investigation because our competitor hacked us and stole our data.
3: Is, is that insider or outsider threat then? Is it like, if you're that close?
1: Well, it's a different company. So I guess outsider. It's not, it's not a Uber employee. It's a Lyft CTO, not just a random mm-hmm. Lyft employee.
2: That feels like something Uber would do, honestly. Like everything that came out from that era of like the gray ball and like all the other crazy stuff Uber was doing. Like, I, I feel like that's something Uber would do to lift, not the other way around. <laughs> Different time. That's a good CTR
0: right there. It's like stepping up your game on competitive Intel. That's a very technical founder
2: <laughs> Yeah, or a CTO or whatever.
0: That's my hot goss. <laughs> I love it. All right. Well, that's even, that's even more fun. Uh, that's our, that's our super skateboarding dog. All right. Game time. So what we're going to do is we're going to play a game where we're going to go in categories. I have one for each of you. And I'm not going to tell you in advance what the th- what the items are. You have to generate a list. So one would be the best, five would be the worst. And so I will just throw out one and you have to try and put it in the right order. Uh, and hilarity will ensue. So first up, the category is appsec and because it's appsec Clint has to do it. Of course. Okay.
3: So, so check one marks. is the
0: best, five is the worst. One, one's the best, five's the worst. And check, check marks is your first one and talk, talk through your reasoning.
1: Okay. Uh, so I have used check marks at NCC group doing consulting projects. Uh, so I have like tuned rules and written custom rules for them, for clients. It takes like hours to load a lot of projects and was not super easy to use. So I'm going to give it, uh, I'm debating between a three or four, cause I'm sure there's going to be some that are worse, but I didn't, I didn't like it. Um, good, good strategy. So, uh, I guess I'm going to give it a three. So I give myself some nice buffer on both sides. Okay. Burp. Burp. Ooh, Burp is great. Um, Super useful uh, sort of industry standard for web app pen testing. I'm going to give it a one because I think it's great. And uh, I like Daft, the founder. Super good dude. Yeah. Awesome. Vericode.
0: Vericode is your next one.
1: Vericode? Yeah. Oh, man. Multiple SaaS tools in the same one. Um, Okay. So I'm going to give them a... For because uh I feel like they can only operate on binaries. And I feel like there's a lot of useful information you lose uh when you don't have access to source code. They do have some cool founders though, but yeah, four's final answer. Okay. Sumgrep. Ooh. Okay. Uh <laughs> I am, You knew it was coming. It had to uh, five. <laughs> I'm gonna give you like an unbiased answer uh <laughs> for the company I work. Um, so I would say uh so burp number one, uh then semgrep number two, uh, because it's uh, open source, super fast and does uh, a lot of cool stuff. And I worked awesome. there.
0: Right. That bumps it up. All right. Fortify. That's your last one. And you have one slot left. You're a
1: five for that. Okay. Uh, hey, you made a pretty good list. Five, five. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Even if I'd known all of them ahead of time, I think, uh, it would be a close to what I gave them. Um, I did actually, uh, intern at Fortify when I was a grad student and, uh, met a lot of cool people and they're, um, a good team. Uh, but they've been acquired a few times, and I think uh, it's tough to keep vision when that happens. But my
0: favorite Fortify story: I was working for HP at the time that we open sourced Bandit, and I got a nasty gram from the Fortify team, and they're like, "Hey, they're like, you're at HP, we're at HP, we make a commercial version of the thing that you've just open sourced. Like, first of all, why don't you just use that? And two, like, why are you spending company time creating something that's going to compete with our cash cow?" It's like, yeah. It, took, it takes like four hours to run and you need like 16 gigs to even fire it up. So Bandit was was fit for purpose.
1: Yeah, yeah that's Bandit, a really bad sign. <laughs> Bandit was like the most popular Python static analysis tool for a long time.
0: I think Sumgrep has done a good job of of taking it off the throne. Well-deserved. New categories. Uh, this one's for Ana. So these are gonna be security hires at a new company um, and the company has just IPO'd for context. So this is the stage that you're at.
3: And this is the first security hires and they have already IPO. would
0: You're going to have, let's say you're going to have like 10 security hires and these will be some of them. You okay. have to prioritize.
3: All right.
2: Head of GRC. You're at Chegg and you've just IPO. would
3: <laughs> <laughs> This is their first security hires. I got it. Cause they currently don't have any security people. I assume. Right. Right. Um, head of GRC. Ooh. Um, for Chegg, though, because they're probably a highly regulated regulated space, I would say I would, I would go for Clint's. Like, let's start with a three here.
0: Okay. Uh, DNR engineer. Uh, two. CISO.
3: Five. <laughs> I love it. CISO is not important.
0: Yeah. Who needs
3: them? Cloud
0: security engineer.
3: Uh, are we using the cloud or are we on-prem? Oh, yeah. Chegg <laughs> uses the cloud. All right, then. Uh, you got a dangerous <laughs> S3 buckets out there. Yeah, one. Then it's for the S3 buckets.
0: Okay, and you have one slot left. Uh, this is going to be four for you, and that's your sock analyst.
3: I think that I'm I'm aligned with this this list. Actually, I think it's correct. You made a good list.
0: Okay, that leaves you leaf. So we have one more spot good. for you. Yep, you have to fill in the ways to sell a security product. Cool. Okay. So the the first one that you're going to put in a list is cold email.
2: Four. Because I feel like cold calls on the list and I'm going to put that at five. <laughs> <laughs> but I do think it is pretty hard to sell without a relationship. I mean, obviously there's tons of salespeople that do it, but you, you need something else before the cold email. A lot of times, whether it's like marketing or like an event or, you know, an intro or something, I just think it's really hard, um, especially because people that you want to sell to a million other people also want to sell to them. And Anna's just hitting delete, delete, delete all day on the email. So I just think it's tough. So I'm I'm giving it a four.
0: Anna's a pro. She's got good filtering setup. I'm sure of it. I just automatically delete.
2: <laughs> okay. At the end of the day, if, if Anna hasn't read the email, it just gets deleted. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah. Intro to sales from your friend.
2: Oh, that's got to be like a one or a two. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to give that a one. Cause I feel like a lot of security people just really trust their friends and having social capital to have somebody vouch for a security person is huge or a salesperson in security is huge. So I'm going to go number one.
0: Uh, review blog.
2: What is that?
0: A blog that breaks down various products.
2: Oh. Ooh, I don't know. I feel like a lot of those are just paid for nonsense. Like but also people trust Gartner. So maybe I, I don't think that it is a very good tactic if you were trying to sell to me, but I do think that it works. So I'm going to give it a three.
0: three. Okay. And then Gartner is your next one.
2: Oh, fuck. What's the difference
0: between,
2: <laughs> between <laughs> that and what I just said? Um, well, I guess I got to Gart- give Gartner a five then I guess like, I don't know. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry, Gartner.
0: Well, so you have one slot left and that's number two. And that's going to be sales calls your phone repeatedly. <laughs>
2: <I got> him. <laughs> Damn it. should have gone two on Gartner.
0: Yeah. All right. For all the salespeople listening, Leaf prefers this right below an intro from a friend. I,
2: uh, I was holding out for product-led growth. I thought for sure I was going to get PLG in there somewhere. <laughs> but you also knew the phone call was coming. Yeah. Well, I was like, I don't know, it's phone. I thought maybe you you would you were skipping phone call, and we're gonna go PLG, but uh, that's kind of meta gaming. But that was that was entertaining, even if it isn't how I actually feel on the, on the list. In retrospect, it was good. We got two good lists. Yeah.
0: So
3: the game works. Uh, yeah. But also, I will never do business with a person who cold calls my phone. Like I will not.
2: Yeah.
0: I, just I will. They
3: the they phone. they end up on a list that I will never do business with. So if you were hearing this and you would call somebody, never call me.
0: I just got one last week. It was so annoying. We're calling Stay
2: about out. your car's extended warranty.
0: Stay out of my phone. Yeah. I got a text from somebody like, Hey, are you going to be at reInvent? And I was like, Oh, do I know you? And they're like, no, they're like, I'm trying to line up deals for my CEO to meet. I'm like, oh, I'm good. Thank you.
2: All right. So that's a wrap for us. Clint,
0: you're a hero. Thank you for filling in. Uh, next time we will have Will again, but we want to have you back soon. You're awesome. And yeah, I appreciate the the takes on the Joe Sullivan stuff and all the rest of the news and producing a really good list.
1: Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. I had a blast hanging out with my friends. That's a wrap. Catch you all next time. Thank you.